This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hey, very good morning to you on this Saturday, the 22nd of October. This morning we are talking deliberate practice. What does it mean? What do we do? And what should it actually mean? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning, everybody. It is once again Saturday. Today is the 22nd of October. I can't believe how quickly October has gone, especially compared to the rest of the year. Uh, I personally found 2022 to be a very slow going year. But October seems to have whizzed by, possibly because we've had half term to look forward to. Um, I know that not everybody is quite there yet. I've seen lots of uh, lots of commiserations commiseratory, that's the word that I want, posts uh, on Twitter from those of us who are on half-term already and those who are not. So if you are still going, keep it up. You can do five more days. That's fine. That's easy. And for those of you that are on holiday now, take it easy. Do what you need to do in order to make next half-term bearable, more, um, more straightforward, but don't overdo it. I think there's sometimes about uh, about self-care. When we see the word self-care banded around on social media, it quite often looks like doing nothing. Um, you know, we see it in terms of, of bubble baths and lighting candles and face masks and all that sort of thing. Um, and often I think we can use self-care as a, a justification for laziness or for slacking off. And let's be honest, there's nothing wrong with slacking off sometimes, um, especially when you've had as intense an eight weeks as many of us in teaching have had. The number of, of inspections that I've seen going on around the Twitter sphere um, amongst Twitter teachers has been more than I think I've seen in a long, long time. Uh, of course, COVID probably has something to do with that, let's be honest. Um, but there seems to have been all sorts going on over the last few weeks. And so it is good to stop and to just take some time to do nothing. But at the same time, it's really important to not cut off your nose to spite your face. It's important to recognise that actually we do have another six, seven, eight week term coming up, depending on how your holidays fall. And sometimes the best self-care that you can do is by taking your holiday time, particularly when you have an extended holiday time, and planning to make next half term easier. So for me, I know exactly what that looks like. Um, I acknowledge my privilege right now, um, as I often do, by recognising that I work in an independent school. And so that does mean that I have a two week half term. Uh, Please don't hate me. (laughs) And so that does mean that I can 
get a decent amount of time off while doing some work. But I already know that this coming week, my first week off, I'm going to uh, make all of my year nine booklets. Um, I said a couple of weeks ago on my show about um, about note taking that I've switched over to booklets. If you haven't listened to that show yet, please do go back through the archives and and track it down because it is an I think it's an interesting exploration into the different ways that we get students to record and and why we do that, which ties quite nicely into the theme of my show today about deliberate practice. Um, but I've made the move to booklets, uh, and I did that specifically for my own self care. Um, I know that booklets are very um, in vogue right now. They are very popular amongst social media teachers. There's all sorts of things going around about the the positive um, educational benefits of booklets. And, and, you know, that's that's a great thing. But I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to pretend that that informed my choice. It helped to justify my choice, but it didn't inform it. It's because I find it much easier to plan booklets. Um, if I have got my sequence of four lessons, for me a booklet, as I've explained a couple of weeks ago, a booklet takes four lessons, uh, that means that I've got that done. And for my year nines, that's two weeks. So over the next couple of days, I'm going to make uh, three year nine booklets to cover my six weeks. I'm going to make booklets for my A-level Chinese groups uh, to take me through until Christmas. Um, I'm going to make my booklets for my year eight German groups to take me through to Christmas. And that then is four sets of four sets of students taken care of. And so that's four fewer sequences of lessons that I have to plan. It's not a lot in the grand scheme of things. You know, when I have to take those booklets in and mark them and, and when I've still got all of my other classes to, to prep for. But it's four that I then don't have to worry about. And I know that taking a couple of days, because if I just sit down, I might even go into school and use my classroom. If I just sit and get it done, it doesn't take me very long at all. Um, it's when, for me, it's when I'm having to plan around other things. It's when I'm trying to fit planning into a free period in between two lessons. Or when I'm having to um, plan very quickly after I've marked something. Because I know that the marking that I've just done will inform what comes next in my sequence. That's where things start to get stressful for me personally. So I am going to take some of my half term to do some work. But for me, that is self-care. That's what self-care looks like. And I think it's important to remember that. It doesn't have to be um, face masks and bubble baths. It can be getting the stuff done that you need to get done so that your life is easier going forward. So as I like to say on the show, because, you know, we we at Teach Talk Radio in general, but especially at the Saturday Breakfast Show, we are big advocates of protecting mental health for all people, um, for our listeners who are not teachers, because I know we do have a, a nice core of listeners who are not teachers, for our students, but also for ourselves as teachers, because if we burn out, our students are not going to benefit at all. So even if you don't like the idea of doing something for yourself and you're one of those um, highly altruistic teachers who has to do everything with their students in mind, then just remember that self-care does ultimately benefit your students as much as it benefits you. It's been another exciting week here at the Saturday Breakfast Studio. Uh, I took delivery last Sunday of the next book for my vanity shelf. Um, if you tuned in live last Saturday, um, you will have heard that um, 
the Sunday before that, I received a book that I had um, edited. And so that was very exciting to go up on the shelf. To, uh, last Sunday, I received a book that I proofread that has gone up on the shelf. And so that's very cool. And that's been an unexpected um, benefit for me of going into teaching. Um, I never intended to be a teacher. I always feel really guilty when I talk to colleagues, particularly when I was in primary. And they were like, yes, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher ever since I was very young. It's all I've ever wanted to do. My whole life has been dedicated towards this moment of training to teach. Because um, that wasn't my plan at all. Uh, I was going to be famous. Um, I was an actor. Um, I, I've been an actor since I was 11 years old. I've done all sorts of, of shows, both amateur and professionally, in, in various countries across Europe. Um, and that was my plan. I was an actor, I was going to be rich and famous, and, and that's all there was to it. And then it was actually my mum, and I think I've told this story before, it's my mum who suggested that I go into teaching, um, kind of as a backup plan, I suppose. And so I did, because, you know, I do what my parents suggest, and I trained. Um, and I graduated into the 2007 economic crisis when I was offered a teaching post part-time um, primary French and Japanese and I thought oh, okay actually I would be stupid to turn this down in the current economic climate um, and so I took it kind of with the intention of, of leaving when the economy um, evened out again and 16 years later I'm still in the classroom different school different age range but uh, but still teaching but yeah, that, that, that wasn't my plan. I, I was going to be an actor and kind of when when the role started to dry up, I was going to be a playwright. I was going to be one of those very, very famous, rich and famous playwrights who write their own shows, direct their own shows, star in their own shows. Basically, I was going to be a one-man show storm. Um, of course, that, that didn't pan out, but I do still enjoy writing. And I never anticipated that teaching would actually give me an extra avenue into writing. Um, I've written other things. I've got academic articles scattered all across the internet. Um, I've got books under pen names, <clears throat> excuse me, so you, you won't be able to find them. Um, and I'm going to be very honest, the reviews are not very good, <laughs> so it probably isn't worth tracking them down. <laughs> um, but they're there, they're there. So I've done, I've, I've, I've done bits of writing, but it's been in the past couple of years that I, I realised that I can turn my skills, my teaching skills, into book form. And so I've taken up quite a lot of opportunities to edit books, to proofread books. This weekend, fingers crossed, I will be finishing off um, the book that I am currently co-authoring. Uh, my co-writer is, is now waiting for me because I've got some audio that I need to edit so that it can be done. Um, and I don't want to let her down. So that, in fact, is what I'm going to be doing when we finish the show today, is getting on with that. But I, I kind of, when I trained to be a teacher, nobody told me that there would be all of these other avenues that you can explore using the skills that you have as a teacher. You know, using, they are educational books, they are textbooks. Um, I've written quite a few textbooks over the last two years. Um, and you know, because our job is to explain things, if you are able to, to do that in writing, if you're able to take what we can do out loud 
with the students and condense that into writing, then, you know, it's, it's a very interesting avenue to explore. So that was very exciting when that dropped through the letterbox. We had, um, we had a birthday in the Saturday Breakfast Show family. Tim, one of our, um, our regular listeners and contributors, celebrated a birthday on Tuesday. So once again, a very happy birthday to you. Um, I attended a course also on Tuesday, it was a very interesting course, on um, translating children's literature. Um, and one of the things that I realised over the course of the course was exactly how, how personal everything is, exactly how subjective everything can be. Oh, Tim has just texted in. He says, thank you, cake for everyone. That's absolutely fine. Um, I am more than happy to have cake for breakfast. In fact, on this show, we advocate cake for breakfast. We think that cake is a perfectly acceptable breakfast food. So <laughs> I think if you are listening you and you have cake to hand, um, you should grab some in honour of Tim's birthday from last Tuesday. Um, so yeah, I, I was on this course about translating and we had all of the, the participants, because it was it was a seminar style, all the participants had been given the extract of a book to translate um, from Dutch into English. And we were being led by the translator who had produced the official translation of the book. Um, hello, Kirkley. You are texting all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. It is nice to, to, to have you here. I've got friends um, over in Georgia. It's a very, very nice part of the USA. I'm glad that you can join us. I'm glad that you would be up so early to join us. It's, it's what, 4.15am for you. I'm glad to have you here. Um, so yeah, we had, we had this extract that we were translating and, and on the surface, it didn't seem particularly difficult. Um, it was a children's book. The language was, was very straightforward. The age range was kind of 10, 11 years old. So there was, there was no, um, vague or unnecessary vocabulary in the book. And so I produced what I thought was going to be a very standard translation. And then in the seminar we shared, and it made me realize how very different our translations were and how very differently we saw the vocabulary that we were translating based on how we pictured what we had read. Because of course, as readers, we build up these pictures of, of books in our imagination. That's the point of books. And so we had all seen the main character ever so slightly differently. We had all interpreted their motives ever so slightly differently. Um, most of us thought that the main character was a little bit quirky. One of the participants asked whether he was on the autistic spectrum because that was how they had read the character. And, and there was a long conversation about that. Um, one of the translators had taken some liberties with the translation um, and had kind of added something that wasn't there in the original Dutch. Um, and the translator really liked that approach. Um, I had done the same a little bit later on. Um, and I had taken a Dutch word and given it a connotation in English that granted doesn't exist in Dutch, but um, made sense in the context. And the, the translator didn't like what I had done, um, didn't like that, that I had taken that liberty. And so again, even down to a professional guiding us, 
we were we were being given two kind of different messages that it was okay to take liberties with translation in some respects but not in others and and that was all through his lens of what made for a good translation and that then made me think about our lens of um oh Kirkley's up late not early fair enough fair enough i hope when you finally get to bed you um you get a good night's sleep or a good day's sleep i suppose um yeah it made me think about in teaching how often we are judged again i talked about this a few weeks ago just after our inspection um but we are we we anticipate observations um in fact it's in union guidelines that we will be observed and that's okay and the guidelines are there to make sure that we are not observed an unnecessary number of times we expect the inspectors to come in we expect learning walks to happen and under most union rules they do count towards our observations so do just bear that in mind um but we we take observation and we take judgment um Kirkley texted back in enjoying the show so it's your fault well thank you very much i will i will absolutely take responsibility for that um i'm quite happy to take responsibility for for people enjoying the show uh, and i'm glad i'm i'm really pleased i'm really pleased that's much better than you being up late um so that you can heckle me i suppose um and so yeah, yeah, we 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 expect this judgment. You know, the kids judge us. They we see rightly or wrongly. We see the videos that go around about when they secretly video teachers and post it to TikTok or or whatever they are using at the moment with captions. Um, everything that we do has a judgment from somebody attached to it, and and quite often those judgments can make or break careers you know the the judgment of an inspectorate will decide for parents whether or not they send their children to a school which in in both state and independent sectors will decide the amount of funding that a school gets um state sectors of course from the government independent sectors from school fees the judgments that we get during our routine observations might impact our um, goals going forward they will impact the types of courses that we attend they impact what our personal targets and objectives are learning walks could impact if you're in a very large school could impact how senior leadership sees the departments that you work in um, and even though as individual teachers, depending again on the size of your department, you might only be a small fraction of the teaching that they see, that will help to build up uh, their perception of your department. And in lots of cases, consciously or not, it will decide what the school chooses to sell when it markets itself. And so there are all sorts of ways that, that we are judged through the lens of somebody else and through a lens over which we actually have no control because nobody goes into a classroom thinking oh fantastic i have planned the worst lesson of my career today it's going to be awful i cannot wait but at some point we do all have the worst lesson of our career 
And if that happens to be during an observation, um, or actually in my case, it was during an interview, um, it was an interview lesson, it was appalling, um, you know, that's going to impact certain things that could have a huge impact on your life. And I don't have an answer for that. I don't, because there is nothing that we can do to, to stop these observations. Um, and maybe we shouldn't stop these observations, you know, maybe there should be these safeguarding, but not in an, in the way that we usually mean safeguarding, but maybe there should be these checks in place to make sure that, that we are doing our jobs properly. Um, but I wonder to what extent they have too much of an impact on us, on the way that our year pans out. And as I said on a show um, back in September on our self-esteem, uh, once again, I did a whole show on teacher perception and teacher self-esteem. This is something that, that I think of quite a lot in my practice because um, I'm very interested in teacher training and in making sure that we, we get the best out of our colleagues um, and out of ourselves. And so I think, I don't know, I think we need to always be aware of the fact that whenever somebody passes judgment on us, there is going to be truth to it. And that truth may be uncomfortable. But at the same time, it might be that the lens through which the observation is coming um, is not particularly relevant to us. It's not particularly relevant to our real life. Everything, everything is subjective, um, including judgments that are placed on us. have teamed up with the Witherslack Group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free with lunch included and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for your voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash your voice 2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators. Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and wellbeing in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this 
is Teachers Talk Radio News. A London council has waded into the ongoing debate over free school meals by writing to the government calling for the eligibility threshold for secondary school children to be almost tripled. It is currently set at £7,400, but the letter from Southwark Council suggests a rise to £20,000 per year. The letter, quoted in the Evening Standard, calls on the Secretary of State for Education, Kit Malthouse, to act now to avert a calamitous hunger crisis. It urges the government to initiate universal free school meals for primary age pupils alongside the raise of income threshold for secondary pupils. The letter coincides with calls from Feed the Future, a coalition of campaigning organisations coordinated by the Food Foundation, for the government to extend free school meals to all children living in poverty in England. This appeal is also in line with national food strategy recommendations, which were released earlier this year. STV News reports on how teachers, parents and young people from across Scotland are to be asked for their views on plans to reform the country's education system. A consultation has been launched as part of an independent review of qualifications and assessments, which was first announced in 2021. The review is being led by Louise Hayward, Emeritus Professor at Glasgow University, and it will provide advice for ministers to consider in March 2023. It is hoped the consultation will gather opinions on the balance between exams and other forms of assessment, as well as how a wider range of learners' achievements can be recognised. The consultation will close on December the 16th this year. Professor Haywood said that the reviews of qualifications and assessment offers Scotland an opportunity to look to the future, whilst Education Minister Shirley-Ann Somerville said the review and consultation process had a clear purpose in improving experiences and outcomes in education. In Northern Ireland, two primary schools have created an animation focusing on children's mental health. The animation is called Our We Thoughts and Feelings and was created by pupils from Elm Grove and Christ the Redeemer Primary Schools. The animation was created through Our Generation, funded by an EU Peace 4 project and led by Action Mental Health. The project also received funding from the Executive Office. The project aims to build positive relations and emotional resilience in children and young people. Pupils completed the Better Together programme, learning about friendships, empathy and breathing techniques to help manage feelings. The animation workshops were held in both schools, with children travelling between the east and west side of the city. The objective of the Our Generation project is growing up better together and is currently being delivered on both sides of the border. Its core aim is to build positive relations and emotional resilience in communities impacted by the Troubles. Earlier this month, we reported on the three dads walking as they campaigned to get suicide prevention on the school curriculum in all four home nations. One of the three dads, Mike Palmer, who lost his daughter to suicide, has now won a Pride of Britain Special Recognition Award. Mike and the other two dads, Andy Airy and Tim Owen, have secured 127,000 signatures for their online petition, which should now prompt a debate in the House of Commons. The Pride of Britain Awards will be broadcast on ITV on the 27th of October. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. 
Hello, this week I'm going to talk about the power of a like. You know that little thumbs up symbol or the little red heart? In the news, young people are finding a reply to a message with a thumbs up as annoying and are looking to avoid using it. Why? Well, you pour your heart out, take the time to construct, punctuate, even find a gift that matches the mood to get a thumbs up returned faster than the time it takes to read the message. Laughy face emojis are another questionable reply. Are you one of these people? And do you need to consider how you reply to messages or not? Before we get all emoji and all, oh, see what I did there. I would like to share the true power of a like. I don't have that many followers on Twitter. It's always a nice surprise when I take a look to see someone has liked something I've said. However, this week I had the best like of my life. I was asked to be keynote on the ICT for Education conference in Manchester and while I was there I took a selfie with Professor Miles Berry who is Professor of Computing and Education at the University of Roehampton and has lots of kudos in the computing world. When I checked on Twitter later that day I saw that none other than Martin Dugimas, founder and CEO of Moodle, Moodle is an open source virtual learning platform. He had liked my tweet. Martin Dugimas is one of my computing heroes and he liked my tweet. I do think actually he was liking the fact that Miles was tagged into it, but I'm just going to brush over that part. The point I'm making here is liking and reacting is a powerful thing. It may be annoying that you get a heart or a thumbs up or an okay hand back, but you got a reply. Acknowledgement that I have this and thanks for sending. Acknowledgement that I'm busy and we'll read this later. So yes, sometimes liking a message may be seen as a lazy way out, but is it not better than getting nothing back at all? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the emoji response. In fact, I'll be tweeting about this this week. Please like it or even take the time to reply. As always, tag in at TT Radio 2022. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. I love Two Minute Tech. It's one of my favourite parts of the show um, because Steve always gives me something to think about. I will always respond to a message. Um, I will usually do both personally, um, an emoji and then a, a, a written response. But, you know, I'm a language person, so writing is what I do. Um, but it didn't occur to me that people might uh, might think that, that the emoji response is annoying. So to the people that I text, and I know that a few of you are listening, um, because I've had a couple of texts, uh, personal texts already today about the show. Um, I'm very sorry if I have annoyed you by responding with emojis to your messages. I will do better in future. Um, Manuela, in fact, texted me. Hola, Manuela. Good morning. Um, to say that booklets are really, really good. So we have another fan. I am glad of that. We are talking deliberate practice in today's show. For those of you who listened last week, uh, this was the plan for last week, but not everything goes to plan. Um, sometimes we have to be flexible. And as a teacher, that is something that we become much more comfortable with, much more confident with as, as our career progresses. Um, I'm in year 16 now, and I am more than happy if one of my students derails my lesson with an interesting question. Um, to either shut the question down and get back to my plan if it's not relevant or abandon what I have planned and answer the question because I know my curriculum well enough, I know my subject well enough to be able to, um, to be able to do that and to be able to make it educationally viable, educationally relevant. Um, but I remember being an NQT as it was back then um, and not having confidence to do that at all because, you know, brand new to the classroom, 
didn't really feel like I knew what I was doing, um, despite having just spent three years at university learning education. And so I, I stuck very rigidly to my plan. Um, a very good morning to you, Teacher DZ. You are listening in from Croatia. Fantastic. I love, I love that we have listeners from all over the world uh, tuning into the show this morning. Um, Kirkley did, in fact, text during the news to say that they have gone to bed. Um, so, Kirkley, if you are catching up, I hope that you have slept well. Uh, and a very big welcome to all of our international listeners. And, of course, our British listeners, too. A big welcome to everybody. Um, I'm always, always so pleased that people will want to tune in and, and listen to my thoughts on things. So this, the, the confidence that I now have in my classroom to go off piste, to go off plan, comes from the traditional definition of deliberate practice. Um, the teachfirst.org.uk has a really interesting blog on this. I will, I will tweet the link out to you a little bit later on. Um, and they quote Daisy Christodoulou, who, um, who mentions the, the, the knowing-doing gap that our students encounter, that moment where they have the theoretical knowledge of whatever we are teaching them, but they can't quite put it yet into practice. Prime example, my year nine French group. I did some pop-up grammar with them this week. Uh, and so I explicitly taught them how to conjugate the present tense in French. Uh, they've seen the present tense a lot in French over the last however many years they've been studying. For some of them, nine, because some of them did indeed start in, in reception or in year one. And so subconsciously, they know what the present tense in French looks like. They've seen over our unit of work on um, hobbies, how to use the present tense in verbs such as I like and I do and I read and I listen and I play, you know, all the, all the verbs that, that everybody remembers learning in French when they were 11, 12, 13 years old. And then my lessons this week, I have shown them how to take the infinitive and how to then make that present tense. To do that, of course, I took uh, uncontextualized infinitives. So I just took the verb regarder to play and I showed them how to conjugate it. I took the verb vendre to sell and I showed them how to conjugate it. I took the verb finir to finish and I showed them how to conjugate it. They had seen it contextually already I then had to take it out of context so that they could learn the conjugation. I know that in theory, they know the conjugation. I know that if I put my endings up on the board, because, you know, there are six, 12, 18 different endings to those tenses. I don't expect them to have memorized them yet. I don't mind them having um, a help. I know that they can take any of my regular infinitives and conjugate it. That's absolutely fine. Do I think right now that if I asked them to write a sentence um, using an infinitive that they hadn't seen before, let's take, for example, rougir, to blush, do I think that they could write the sentence, I blush every Saturday at 9.35? Not necessarily. Because they have seen the present tense in context, they have formed the present tense out of context 
And we've now got that knowing doing gap where they know what it looks like and they know what to do, but they can't quite do it yet. And this is where the deliberate practice comes in. And that is, that's Daisy Christodoulou's model of the knowing doing gap in, in a nutshell. We encounter that every single day in our teaching, in every single subject. We stand at the board, we explain something, we think that the students have understood what we've explained, we ask them to do something. And that asking them to do something is what bridges that gap. And that is deliberate practice. They are deliberately, deliberately practicing the skill that we want them to have or the knowledge that we want them to have, essay writing, practical experiments, um, making a lasagna, whatever it might be. And of course, you do that in everything that you learn how to do. There is always that point where you read about it, you watch the YouTube video, you understand the theory, and then you need to attempt to put it into practice. And that includes teaching. It's why we do school practice. It's why we spend those, those terms in a school observing and then trying, because we sit in our lectures and we understand the theory, and then we attempt to apply it to what we are actually going to do. It's the same as a seminar on translation that I attended on Tuesday. I understand the theory of translation. I understand Dutch and I understand English, and I can turn one into the other. But I had to sit down and try and do it so that I could see where the pitfalls were, so that I could see where my personal gaps were and then attempt to close them through practicing. And it is the same in teaching. In his book, um, Deliberate Practice, um, Erickson defines it as purposeful practice that knows where it is going and how to get there. Um, Erickson believes that there is this very clear, very particular model of what expert performance looks like, of what expertise look like, and what actions need to be taken to get there. So again, it, it's a bit like if I use my example of a verb conjugation, um, I might explain to my students, we need to be able to make the present tense so that we can write actual sentences in French that make sense. And we need to know how to conjugate the verb so that we can take any verb that we haven't seen before, such as the verb rougir, to blush, because when have you ever needed that in your life? And use that in a sentence because that's fluency and that's the ultimate goal of my lessons is to help you with your fluency. This in turn requires guidance and feedback, Erickson says, from someone who is more skilled. So in the case of teacher learner, that's me as the teacher. Of course, in teaching, we also need that feedback from somebody who is, in inverted commas, more skilled at teaching than we are. Maybe somebody who has been doing it longer than we have. Maybe somebody who has done an extra degree and so has done some extra studying. So it's all about this, this taking the time to deliberately practice what you have to do, what you need to be doing. 
there is that story, isn't there? And I told this story to, to my year eight this week, that it takes 10,000 hours to master something. Um, now, I've seen online that there are various um, uh, various studies both proving and disproving this theory, um, which is not entirely helpful. But I quite, I, to me, it sounds plausible that 10,000 hours of doing something equates to mastery. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to, to, to roll with that. But that doesn't mean that 10,000 hours of, of just thinking about your skill is going to get you there. I explained this to my year eights in, in their German class this week. Um, because, you know, they, they were starting to get tired, they were starting to get fidgety, they were starting to get restless. And so we talked about how much time is wasted by me having to wait for them to settle. And so I pointed out that they don't achieve their 10,000 hours just by coming into my classroom, because as much as I would love it to, my classroom doesn't just magically put German into their heads. They need to be doing 10,000 hours of very focused, very deliberate practice of German. And, and I pointed out to them that their lessons add to my 10,000 hours. Now, by this point in my life, I've done way more than 10,000 hours of German practice. So I'm, I'm outside of that right now. But that's OK, because every time that I teach something, every time that I, I do something with German or with French or with Latin or with Chinese, Japanese, whatever it is I happen to be teaching, I'm practicing it in the same way that my students are. So that's where the deliberate part of deliberate practice comes in. It's not enough to think, oh, I'm going to stick, um, I'm going to stick an anime on Netflix. And just by doing that, I will become fluent in Japanese because that's not how it works. It's not enough to think, oh, I want to write a picture book. So I'm just going to read a bunch of picture books and then I'll be able to do it because that's not how it works. You need to put the time in, you need to put the effort in, you need to put the focus in, in order to, to pull everything apart. And once again, it's the exact same thing with teaching, that we need to practice the different things that we're going to do. We need to practice how to use the new software on the whiteboard. My school has recently had a new, a, a complete new technology set up come in. Um, we've made the switch from having desktop computers and iPads to just having a Microsoft Surface. And so we have spent a lot of time this half term practicing, finding different ways to do stuff, sharing practice with each other so that we can master this skill. Though we haven't got near 10,000 hours yet. Um, I'm not even sure that the term was 10,000 hours long, even though it felt like it. Um, I'm just going to do the math. So 10,000 hours, as long as I have done this properly, 10,000 hours is 416.7 continuous days. So no, we have not yet reached 10,000 hours with our surfaces. Um, but we were practicing, we were deliberately practicing, we were taking the time to have a go, we were taking the time to try. Um, in his book, Peak, uh, Erickson talks about how adaptable our brain is. Uh, you know, there is that belief that eventually our brains essentially become full and that there is nothing more that we can learn. Um, but there is this, this 
area of psychology that Erickson discusses called the science of expertise. And that's where this concept of deliberate practice comes from, um, that says that our brain actually doesn't fill up. There isn't a limit to the amount of stuff we can learn. It just sometimes feels like that because we're not learning it in the right way. We're not learning it in a deliberate way. We're at the inset because we have to be, because our contract says that we will go to four inset days a year. If you're just sitting at the inset and not engaging with what the speaker is saying, you're not going to learn anything because that's not deliberate. If I had gone to my seminar on Tuesday and had not done the translation homework that we've been set before the seminar, I wouldn't have learned anything because I wouldn't have been able to get feedback from the translator who is more skilled at translation than I am. So it's never a case of, of you're too old to learn new tricks. It's just maybe as we get older, we don't have the time to practice anymore. We all lead busy lives. Um, yeah, how many of us have said, oh, I would love the opportunity to go and observe somebody else teach. I would love to the, have the time to go and watch somebody else teach so I could learn something, despite the fact that we were all bored rigid of observations by the end of our training. And we just don't have time to do that anymore. And so when it feels like you're being given these new technologies or these new strategies or these new pedagogies, and you are sitting there thinking, no, I can't learn this. This, this is one step too far. It's not that you can't learn it. It's just that you are not being afforded the time to deliberately practice. And I think for anybody who's listening who might be in charge of teacher development, that is really important to think about. If you are going to overhaul your whole school approach, or even at a lower scale, your whole faculty approach, you need to make sure that you are providing time for your teachers to practice these new skills. Deliberate practice. It's that practice that makes things automatic. I spoke about 15 minutes ago at fluency, and we use the term fluency a lot in languages. Um, and, you know, quite often the thing that people will ask is, are you fluent in? I get the question, are you fluent in your nine languages? And, and I go, yes, I am. And fluency doesn't mean that I know every single word in all nine of those languages, because I don't know every single word in English. Uh, the example that I use with my kids when I talk about this is that I don't drive. Uh, I never learned how to drive. So I don't know what car parts are called. I've never needed to. Um, it's, it's a common joke between me and one of my colleagues at school that we don't have baby vocabulary in French. Um, we both teach French, uh, we're both native speakers of English, but we, we don't have words like rattle or cot um, or um, formula because we've never needed it. And if you don't need a word in a foreign language, you tend not to learn it. Um, birds is another common one for the polyglots amongst you. It's really difficult to learn bird words in foreign languages. You will learn a few, uh, a few really common ones or a few that are, are interesting, but birds and trees tend to be a big gap in people's second, third, fourth languages, and sometimes even in their first, 
because you just don't need them. You don't learn them. So fluency doesn't mean in, in linguistics knowing all of the words. It means being able to speak your language or write your language or read your language or comprehend your language in a natural, appropriate way. It means being able to do it with very little effort. That's ultimately what fluency means. I can do it without having to exert too much effort. And it's the same in skills. We gain fluency in skills when we can do it with very little effort. So these days, ah, hello, um, Olabi Abdullah. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. I'm really sorry if I haven't. Um, I'm really glad to hear you um, listening in from Nigeria today. That's very, very cool. Uh, such an international community this morning. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, it's about this practice and any skill to gain that fluency, to gain that ease, you need to make sure that you are practicing. Lemoff and Woolway in, in their book, Perfect Practice, make a comparison to sports coaching. And, and they say that in sports, and I'm going to take their word for it, I'm, I'm not a sporty person um, at all. I, I never did sport outside of mandatory PE. Um, but they say, and I've got no reason to doubt them, that uh, in sports coaching, micro actions are practiced over and over and over before um, they are, um, before the athletes go into a real competition. So, you know, let's say that you are in... I remember my rugby lessons, for example, at school, um, and we would practice throwing the ball because this is like the one sports thing that I do remember. Um, so just in case you're not familiar with rugby, you pass the ball behind you um, really weirdly. Nobody ever told me why. So if anybody knows, I'd be interested to know why. But you pass the ball backwards. And we had to practice that because it's not a natural action to, to take a ball and then throw it behind you because it can be really difficult to judge. I don't know. I'm doing the action. Um, I should I should have my camera switched on on YouTube or something so that you can see me pretending like I'm throwing a rubber ball. Um, but it's not natural to throw something backwards because it's quite hard to judge where the other person is and, and to get them in your line of sight. So we practice that. We spent a long time practicing that. Uh, whole lessons practicing that one. And you do it over and over and over until you can do it properly, until you can do it for real. And so when Lemoff and Woolway um, did their research and, and they looked at hundreds, hundreds of classrooms as they did it, they concluded that teacher practice, the going over the skills that we need, needs to be, um, and I quote, efficiently run, well planned and intentionally executed. So deliberate. And like I've said, that means building in time, building in time for the observation that you've had from the line manager to, to sink in, for you to absorb the feedback, go, this is the bit that I need to improve in my practice or not take that observation feedback on board and just decide for yourself, this is the bit that I need to improve in my practice. And then have the time to practice it. And you don't need a classroom of, of kids in front of you to practice. 
Um, I remember during my B.Ed. we were told to practice our delivery of lessons in front of a, a mirror. So in our first year, on our very first placement, um, it was after October half term in our first year, and, and we spent two weeks observing, and then we had to do one starter a week. Uh, and that, that was all we did. We observed and we did one starter. And part of our assignment was to practice that starter in front of the mirror. And, and, and so we did. We dutifully did. And it got better. So you don't need to have the students in front of you in order to practice. Um, obviously, if your target is anticipating students' needs, then it is a bit easier if you've got them there. But it's not always necessary. It's not always necessary. You can do it yourself. But of course, I keep coming back to this. It's about finding the time to do that. And again, that perhaps is where the self-care that I talked about at the top of the show um, comes into play. Because if I've already planned, let's say, 25% of my lessons for next half term over the next week, then that means that I've gained myself some time. And yes, I would love to be able to use that time to read a book or to play a game or to watch a film or whatever. Um, but maybe I'm going to use some of that time to practice because that's how I'm going to get better. And I do expect my students to practice in their own time. That's, that's what homework is for. And so maybe it's only fair that I practice in my own time as well. The Teach First blog goes on to say, the habit of practice instilled during initial teacher training is a foundation, not just for a successful training year, um, or in the case of those of us that did a B.Ed. a training three years, but for a career of continuous improvement. And for me, that's really important. It's not good enough, in my opinion, for me to sit down and go, I've been a teacher 16 years. Um, I know what I'm doing. I don't need to practice. Because that means that I'm not changing my practice. It means that I'm not changing what I do in my classroom. I'm just recycling the same things over and over again. And we all know, we all know that every year, different groups of kids come and sit in front of you. And so the lessons that you've taught previously do not work. If you are a trainee or an ECT and you've heard the advice, oh, you know, plan your PowerPoint, make your Prezi because you can just put it out again next year. Yes, you can. But please don't think that you can just use that outright because the students you're teaching will be very different. What you need to teach them will be very different based on how they respond. And, and so we need to be improving as teachers. I think in any career, you need to be consciously improving. As people, we need to be consciously improving. Um, otherwise, what are we doing with our time? But it also, uh, the Teach First blog goes on to say, instills the ability to adapt in an ever-changing climate of education. And um, that is more prevalent now than ever. I've lost track of how many education secretaries we seem to have been through in the last two weeks. Um, we've had more consultations on new GCSEs, even though it feels like we've only just started the latest set of GCSEs. Things are always changing. Nothing change, nothing changes, but everything changes. It's a, a very, very odd job like that. There's nothing new and there's everything new. And again, if we're not prepared to practice and we're not prepared to find the time to practice, then 
we're, we're not going to adapt and we're not going to change and we get stuck. But the thing is, this is not what I thought deliberate practice was when I first heard the term. So deliberate practice is, and you know, I'm, I'm happy to accept when I'm wrong. It does happen on, on very, very rare occasions. Deliberate practice is deliberately practicing what you do. And I think my initial confusion when I learned the term all those years ago was because of the American English use of the word practice, because it's with a C, uh, which is, of course, a noun in British English and not a verb. So in my head, when I saw deliberate practice written down, it wasn't that I had to practice being a teacher, because for me that would have been an S. But it was making sure that my practice with a C in the classroom was deliberate. And it was about making sure that everything I did as a teacher, that everything I asked my students to do had a very explicit, very specific purpose. I remember being at uni and learning um, filler activities. We had a, I think, it couldn't have been a whole module, but it must have been a seminar. It's probably in my professional studies module um, on filler activities. And I didn't understand why. I didn't understand how you had time for filler activities because I had misunderstood deliberate practice and was making sure that every minute of my lessons was accounted for with something that would help my students to achieve whatever my goal was for them in that lesson. I didn't understand how I could suddenly have five minutes where a game might be necessary. Um, unfortunately, it didn't occur to me at that point that maybe I just misunderstood what deliberate practice was. Um, but I just kept doing what I was doing. And, and even now, when I think about this, I still think that I like my interpretation. I like my interpretation. Um, and in fact, I have it written in the front of my teacher planner. Deliberate practice is and should be, for me, making sure that all of the practice that my students do is deliberate. So again, it's not necessarily about me as a teacher, but it's about making sure that when I get my students to do an activity, that activity explicitly leads towards the goal that I want them to achieve. That might seem really obvious. That might seem really obvious. But we all know, if we interrogate our own practice, we all know that not everything that we do in the classroom leads towards an educational outcome. We use filler activities. And while we might justify our filler activities, while we might say, oh yeah, this might not help to achieve my learning outcome for today's lesson, but you know, it is retrieval practice from two weeks ago. That's great. Retrieval practice is very important, but it, I can't justify using this activity in my lesson today to achieve this goal. And sometimes, if we're very, very honest, our filler activities don't have a motivation that is related to the goal of our course. Because I've done it. I've done 
filler activities where, you know, I found that I've had five minutes to spare because I've misjudged my timings. Um, or when when the timings of lessons have changed, that's been the killer for me. Um, and I realise that I've got them to pack up at the end of an old lesson. And in fact, the lesson is now five minutes longer than it used to be, or five minutes later than it used to be. Um, and, and I have to fill the time. In languages, it's very easy to do that with culture. Uh, you know, I can tell them a story. I can give them a folktale. We can talk about a festival. But none of that actually is relevant in, in modern languages until A-level. And so while that stuff is very interesting and it helps to broaden their general knowledge and it helps, I believe it helps to foster the curiosity, linguistic curiosity, cultural curiosity that is really important. It doesn't do anything to further the goal of getting them a certain grade at GCSE because they don't need to know that stuff for GCSE. And so I can't justify those kinds of activities as part of my deliberate practice because it's not deliberately getting them what they need. So for me, deliberate practice is very much about sitting down and going, right, this is the goal of my lesson. This is my learning outcome. This is what I need my kids to know. This is the amount of time that I've got. And these are the activities that I'm going to do to get them there. It is exactly like um, Erickson said, purposeful practice that knows where it's going and it knows how to get there. The difference, I suppose, between my interpretation and what deliberate practice actually means is that for me, it's about the kids practicing and not necessarily me practicing. Which is not to say that I don't need to practice. Um, it's not to say that, that the actual definition of deliberate practice is, is irrelevant. Um, but I think we do have to think a lot about what we get our kids to do, about why we get them to do the activities we get them to do. And, and figure out whether we can continue to justify them in this ever-changing educational model. In NFL teaching right now, there is something of a, of a revolution going on because lots of people are adapting over to Gianfranco Conti's sentence builder model. Um, we we colloquially, call, colloquially call it quantifying the curriculum. Um, I am just, just in the interest of full disclosure, because I think it's important for you to know, um, I do work with the language gym that's Dr. Conti's uh, business. Um, the book that I mentioned at the top of the show actually is a sentence builder book. So I do have a professional affiliation with them. Um, but that is that is what's happening in MFL right now. We, we are, as, as practitioners, changing the way that we practice. And there are lots of new activities that are coming in. There are lots of new games that we are learning how to do. Uh, in order to follow this new model of pedagogy that we are trying to implement. Um, I've got some favourites, there are some really good ones. Uh, my favourite at the moment is called Sentence Stealer. Now, if you're an MFL teacher uh, and you haven't used Sentence Stealer, I absolutely think that you should. 
if you don't teach MFL, I would be interested to know whether you think you could adapt Sentence Stealer into your own subject in any way. Um, please do, if you are listening back, please do tweet me. I'm at Mr. D. Lester, M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, and let me know whether you've successfully been able to, to adapt Sentence Stealer. But what you do is you display 10 sentences on the board in whichever language you are teaching. You give each student something to write on and something to write with. I personally like post-it notes uh, because it means that they can go in the book so I can evidence that I've done the activity. But you could use mini whiteboards. Um, those of you in the MFL sphere will have seen the discussion about mini whiteboards and it might have bled out into teacher Twitter in general. Uh, this week. It looks like we've rediscovered mini whiteboards again. Um, you know, anything that you want. And they write down one of the sentences. So they've got one of those 10 sentences written down on their post-it note on their board. They then get up, they circulate around the classroom, and they have to steal somebody else's sentence by saying the one that they've got written down. Okay, so let's say, for example, on my board, I've got uh, je m'appelle Pierre as one sentence, my name is Pierre, and j'ai 15 ans as a second sentence, I am 15 years old. And let's say that I, as a student, walk up to my friend Nate, and I say je m'appelle Pierre. And Nate has got je m'appelle Pierre written down on his uh, post-it note. I take the post-it note off of him. So I've now got two. And Nate has to go around and try and steal somebody else's. So in MFL, the goal is to get them speaking. It's a, it's a, a low stakes, high reward way of getting them to speak because the reward is the person with the most post-it notes wins, it's a game. And the low stakes is that nobody else is listening to them speak, except for me as the teacher, because everybody else is too busy speaking. And so they kind of get over that emotional block of, Either I don't know what to say because they've got something written down or I don't want to speak and have everybody else hear me. So I quite like that for that reason. It's also if um, if what was touted for the new MFL GCSE comes to pass, it's also practicing reading aloud, which um, we've been told will be on the new GCSE, uh, which I'm not a fan of. And that will be a show in and of itself. Um, but we've had to learn how to do that. Uh, as a teacher, I had to learn how that game worked because it's not a game that I'd ever played before. It's not a game that I'd ever seen in any other kind of educational context. Uh, it was brand new to me and I had to learn how it worked by watching other people do it. Uh, so I attended courses. Um, I found videos on YouTube where people had uploaded um, on inset days, other people doing it so that I could observe and understand how it worked. I then got my students to have a go. Very first time that I ever did it, because this is one that I couldn't practice in front of the mirror on my own. This is one I did need my students for. Uh, hello, Hassan, listening in from London today. Very, very glad to have you here. Hope you are enjoying the show. Um, yeah, I had the students in front of me and, and we played and it actually went quite well. It went quite well. But what I was able to do is jot down in my planner anything that went wrong. 
um, any of the mistakes that I had made in maybe giving the instructions, anything that I thought had been clear and hadn't been. And then the next time we played it, I was able to deliberately change those things that have gone wrong the first time. Until now, I think I've perfected how I have, how I explain the game. And my students, now that we've played it a few times, have perfected how to do it. So that's deliberate practice, doing the same thing over and over again. But once again, I had to learn how to do that. I had to, um, I had to watch videos. Speaking of watching videos, does anybody remember um, Teachers TV, which was a TV channel dedicated specifically to good practice? Um, I don't think it lasted very long, but it was definitely on while I was training, and I found it very, very helpful. Um, I think if anybody is so inclined and would like to start doing, I suppose, a YouTube channel these days where you video people um, doing activities such as Sentence Stealer so that we can observe, so that we can see how it works before we train and teach it, I would appreciate that because I, I would absolutely tune in um, as part of my 10,000 hours of mastery of different skills. I think that would be very, very good. I think that would be very interesting. So I've kind of waffled for 40 minutes <laughs> about deliberate practice. And I think the, the conclusion that I've come to is that it's very, very important for students to practice the skills that they need to gain mastery in either our subject, for those of us who teach secondary, or the range of subjects that we teach at primary. It's important for us as teachers to practice our teaching skills, to stand in front of the mirror and practice our delivery, to make sure if we're not very good at vocal projection, you know, to, to have go down to the hall with one of your colleagues, have your colleagues stand at the opposite end of the hall and practice projecting your voice over so that they can hear you. Important to practice writing on the whiteboard. I remember doing that. I, on my very first practice, I would spend um, some time every lunchtime practicing writing on the board um, because my handwriting was, was appalling. Um, and now I need to practice writing on my surface because my handwriting is appalling. Um, we need to do these things in order to make sure that we get better. But it's also about making sure that every activity we ask our students to undertake makes sense for the goal that we have for them. And it makes sense for what we ultimately want and need for them to achieve by the end of our lesson. We have teamed up with the Witherslack Group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free with lunch included and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for Your Voice Now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash Your Voice 2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and wellbeing in school. 
You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers, including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger, and many more. There'll be talks, workshops, and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch, and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etcetera Venues, St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. The last thing that I kind of want to talk about in terms of deliberate practice today is decision making. Decision making is something that we all do multiple times a day in many different aspects of our lives. They are small decisions from am I going to have another cup of coffee before I leave for work today through to bigger decisions. What am I going to teach my year 13s today? Back down to small decisions, what am I having for lunch? Have I got time to have lunch? I dread to think how many micro and macro decisions we end up making on any given day. And those decisions that we make have all sorts of outcomes. They can impact the quality of our day. They can impact the quality of somebody else's day because every action that we, that we undertake has a consequence for somebody else absolutely everything. And I think quite often deliberate practice can only be undertaken, deliberate practice can only actually happen if we are actively involved in our own decision-making processes. If we actively decide to make these changes. And it can be really easy not to do that, particularly in a school. It can be really easy to kind of just go with the flow, um, go along with whatever is being decided for you because you don't have the brain space to make that decision. And again, we've all been there where it's been the end of a very long day. If you hear somebody else say your name one more time, you will cry. And then somebody comes and asks you a question that needs an immediate decision and you just go, oh, whatever, I don't mind. But if you have not consciously made that decision, you can't incorporate the consequence of that decision into your practice properly because you haven't thought through all of the different outcomes. Uh, uh, an example from my week is the Spanish department at my school celebrated, um, celebrated, it's not happened yet, they were marking um, Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Uh, Manuela, if you are still listening, I apologise for my butchering of that pronunciation. Um, uh, and and the, the head of Spanish emailed around and asked whether they could borrow the, the year nines um, at some point during that lesson, just for 10 minutes, so that they could go and, and, and help celebrate. 
because uh, not all of the year nines had Spanish that day. So of course I just replied and I said, yeah, yeah, fantastic. That's great. You know, I, I, I love culture. I think it's really important for all of our students to experience this. Perfect. Uh, when would you like them? And then the head of Spanish, she'd been very flexible. She just came back and said, whenever you want to send them. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, and I didn't actually make the decision about when I wanted to send the students over to her until I was in the lesson. And so I went through and I made the I made the worksheets for my lessons and everything. I taught what I needed to teach. Uh, my students were deliberately practicing their present tense. I was calling them out one to one to, one to give them some feedback on the, an essay they'd written for me. And when I had done all of that, I was like, oh, okay, I suppose it's time that I send them over to Spanish. So in my class, about half of them do Spanish and French. Um, I then have some Spanish children in the class, so I sent them over as well. And I was left with maybe about three students who didn't study Spanish. And I suddenly realised that I didn't have anything for them to do because I hadn't deliberately made the decision, yes, the, my students who study Spanish can go across and and take part in the in the celebration. I had just kind of gone with the flow and just been like, yeah, 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 that's fine. Uh, it, it was absolutely fine because in the end, uh, I found a Kahoot to play with them. I love Kahoot. Again, so good for a filler. Um, and when that was done, I actually sent them over so that they could learn a little bit about Mexican culture, um, even though they don't learn Spanish. But had I actively made that decision, had I engaged with the decision-making process, I still would have said, yes, that's fine, instead of just going with the flow. But I would have also made the connection that not all of my students study Spanish, so not all of them would have been going across, and so I would have needed an activity to do with those three. So I wouldn't have felt like I was doing a filler. And there's nothing wrong with filler activities. You know, like I said, I did a module about Earth, module I did a seminar about them at university we learned how to do them because they are often necessary I personally just feel a bit uncomfortable about them because I don't like wasting time I don't like feeling like I'm wasting my students 10,000 hours that they need of their mastery of French um, and you know I suppose as long as you are picking your activity correctly we did a cohort about French uh, then then it's it's not wasting time but it's not helping them to achieve the specific goals that I have for them. So in, in the end, at the end of the day, that was not a huge decision. I have not um, impacted the, the quality of their French learning by not thinking that through properly, by not actively engaging in that decision-making process. But my practice could have been better if I had. And I think that's something that's really important to think about. Is, is the fact that making decisions deliberately allows us to mitigate some of the negative impacts of those decisions, as well as accentuate the positive ones. I think that's where I'm going to leave the show for today, uh, because I think that is quite a nice note for us to end on. Thank you all very, very much for listening. As always, I do appreciate it when you come and have breakfast with me. I am, in fact, the only Teachers Talk radio show this weekend. Um, 
So I do hope that you have managed to get your fix. Please remember that if you would like some more Teachers Talk Radio over the weekend, uh, we do have our whole back catalogue of shows available from wherever you get your podcast. Just search Teachers Talk Radio, or indeed you can make your way to our website um, where everything is archived for you. Um, shows going back right to Teachers Talk Radio Inception are there, um, including all of mine thus far. So please do go back. We've got some things that I think are quite interesting. And of course, you can always engage with me, uh, with Teach Talk Radio itself, or with any of our hosts over on Twitter. We are always really happy to, to be with you. Thank you all, as always, very much for listening. Engage in some deliberate practice this weekend. Deliberately relax. Deliberately read a book. Deliberately play a game. Deliberately decide what you are going to do to maximise it. And I look forward to speaking to you uh, or next Saturday where we are going to have a spooky Halloween themed show. Oh, thank you, Tim. Tim texted in to say great show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, as always, for listening. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend, everybody. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.